Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel, and today I'm joined on the show by Nicholas Joes. The Final Draft Podcast explores books, writing, and literary culture. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Here at Final Draft, we're dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to the household names that you know and love. Each of these conversations is a chance to look at the issues that drive the author's storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. Two SEO broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Today, I'm joined on the show by Nicholas Joes. He is bringing his new novel, The Idealist. The Idealist is an incredible work of historical fiction, exploring Australia's relationship with its neighbour Timor-Leste, East Timor, and looking at the East Timorese independence movement. It was a fantastic chance to explore a little bit of history through an exciting and compelling narrative. So join me as we discover Nicholas Joes' The Idealist. My name's Andrew Popel, and it is my pleasure to be welcoming to the show today, Nicholas Joes. Nick has published eight novels, three collections of short fiction and a memoir, as well as a wide range of essays. Today, he is joining us with his latest novel. It is called The Idealist. Nick, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Hello, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice to be here. I had such a tremendous time reading The Idealist. This is a novel of ideas, but also a pacey, there's there's so much action in this novel. I want to introduce it to the listeners, but before we do, I just want to let um, give people a content warning, let them know that there will be some mention and possible discussion of um, suicide in the conversation. If this is not something that you want uh, in your day right now, this could be a good time to tune out. And if this conversation brings anything up for um, your dear listener, know that help is available on Lifeline 131114. But Nick, without any further ado, I want to introduce us to Australian defence analyst Jake Treweek. Jake has been found dead in his Washington home. Officially, it has been ruled a suicide, but Jake's widow Anne isn't convinced. Jake has been working gathering intelligence in East Timor. The country is boiling under Indonesian occupation and calls for an independence referendum. Jake is always tight-lipped, but Anne knows he'd discovered something. Was it something that cost him his life? I hope I've done justice to the narrative there, Nick. Um, I've, I've tried to confine myself to uh, the opening as well, because, of course, this book is, is much more far-ranging. Yeah, and all of that comes very early in the book. Mm. Um, when when Anne, um, Jake's wife, comes to see their old friend, a lawyer in Sydney, to get help, mm. and that's really the um, you know the, the the start of the novel. Um, although it does move backwards and forwards in time, so that effect that you've just um, you know you've been talking about, where we kind of know something, but we don't really know it. Mm. Um, is is right at the heart of it. It's a very, and the way it begins, it's a very human story, uh, particularly the story of of Anne who is searching for answers. But it it occurs against the background of uh, 
East Timorese independence. And Timor-Leste's independence, it occurred at a time when many of us, if we were even born, I'm sure many listeners weren't, were probably thinking more about Y2K bugs and then the subsequent and tragic war on terror. And I think for many now, if we think about Timor-Leste, we know about the Australian whistleblower who alleged Australia bugged the country's parliament to secure lucrative offshore mining interests. Nick, it seems that throughout Australia and Timor-Leste's shared history, we have not exactly covered ourselves in glory. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, wondered, I wondered where this, where did this history begin for you and what, what would you like readers to know as they open their copies of The Idealist? Yeah, well, what you said is so interesting that this... The key moment um, like in the novel is, you know, 1999, really. And as you say, that moment was swept away. I mean, there was the Y2K bug, we survived that. But then there was 9-11 so soon after. And Australia was so implicated in that in so many ways that it, it just swept away what had happened before and the kind of world looked different. Um, and so, you know, poor old... East Timor, as it was then, even though it became independent um, in 2002, which was a very big achievement, um, it kind of was forgotten again. Um, And it's interesting with this novel, um, it's kind of a historical novel now. All of that was, what, 20, 25 years ago. Mm. Um, But the story of East Timor and Timor-Leste and Australia's relationship just keeps on going. And as you say, we've had the Witness K saga um, only coming to a, a sort of a close very recently, and, and there's there's more on the horizon. Um, so Australia's history, um, yeah, we haven't covered ourselves in glory, as you put it. Um, if you go back to World War II, um, when Australians Australian um, troops were in East Timor, um, the East Timorese people um, provided crucial help to Australians um, in that struggle against the Japanese occupation, which eventually did happen in East Timor. Um, so there's one kind of version of the history which goes back to that period in the 1940s. But then other people say that too was forgotten and, um, you know, what what some people would call the need for Australia to show gratitude Um to the East Timorese was kind of <laughs> put on the back burner. Um, for me, it really began in the year 1975, um, which is when Portugal was decolonizing. So didn't know what to do with East Timor, its colony. And Indonesia saw an op- opportunity to incorporate East Timor, this Portuguese colony, into Indonesia. Um, and so Indonesia invaded in 1975 and occupied the country. Um, and then there was a very long and terrible, violent struggle um, with the East Timorese independence um, movement um, trying to throw off that Indonesian occupation. Um, and so I was, you know, this is now, we're talking about the late 1970s, um, I was um, in Canberra at the time and a lot of people there were following this fairly closely and um, were pretty passionate about um, East Timor achieving independence. So we sort of sang songs in the backyards of 
you know, mm. barbecues in Canberra. There was Fretilin was the uh, resistance movement, and they had a song that um, that we sang. Um, one of those songs is now the kind of national song of Timor Leste. Oh, wow. How did you, I mean, you've given us a little bit of insight there, but how did you go about capturing the time uh, through the novel and particularly those scenes in Dili and the surrounds as Jake travels the country? Yeah, very tricky actually because it was a particular moment in time mm. um, and therefore um, things have to be possible according to how things were then. Um, mm. So I'm thinking of things like there were no mobile phones, um, internet, email in its infancy. Um, there was a thing called the Internet Cafe um, that at a certain point, you know, many of us who travelled heavily depended on you would find some place in a, um, you know, in a, in a foreign country where you could go and check your email. Um, and um, so all of that had to be um, really right. Um, and, you know, I just checked and, um, you know, talked to people and um, tried to get, get what was possible mm. um, then. Um, sort of accurate. Um, but, you know, it's a novel. This is a novel. It's not a documentary history at all. Um, and um, I'm a novelist, and so I also do, you know, like to move things around a little bit um, to suit my story. So there's some of that going on too. Mm-hmm. You open the novel with Anne meeting with an old friend. David is a prominent lawyer, and Anne hopes he can help her get justice for Jake. Now, what follows takes the reader back in time through David and and ultimately Jake's perspectives leading up to Jake's death. In this, there are elements of the who done it, but perhaps more importantly, there's the why done it. Um, as we we come to try to figure out why was this so? Like, was it inevitable? I want to think here a little bit. I love. I'm a. I'm a sucker for um, stylistic questions, and I really wanted to ask you about this pacing, this style. Was it key to engaging the reader in some of the wider geopolitics of the idealist? Yeah. Look, the, the story has has to be a story. Um, but one of the one of the themes in the novel, um, because as you've said, Jake is a defence analyst. He's working in Canberra. Um, is that intersectional of the intersection of the political and the personal. Mm. And that's, you know, that's something that I'm just so interested in. And what happens to someone who, um, like in the case of Jake, who we, you know, we'll call an idealist mm. who believes in certain things. And then as they, move through life as their career goes on, as they find themselves um, perhaps in Canberra working on some sensitive material, they really feel their loyalties are being challenged and often there are old relationships, friendships, kind of mentor relationships um, that become difficult to handle Um, and sometimes that goes back into the past, you know, when when we were young, when we were kids, when we were students. Um, And I'm just so interested in that, how the the personal and the political kind of tangle up 
and people's values get challenged. Um, and so that's a story that is like working across the geopolitical and the personal all the time. Um, and, yeah, you can say that the personal story, you know, in which we can get emotionally invested mm -hmm. is a way to look again at this larger history. Um, I hope so because, um, you know, that larger history, you know, has implications in our present today. Um, but if people want to understand it at, at just at a more emotional level, I think that's important too because you're bringing a different kind of understanding mm. to bear on what, what happens. I liked your characterization of Jake as the idealist there because there were times in the novel where not that I was shaken necessarily in my faith in Jake, but I, I saw other characters and wondered um, how broadly the, the title could be applied. And given we, um, we, we first meet Jake through Anne's loving eyes, we then appreciate Jake through David and their shared history. And then it gets murkier. And given the rarefied era of politicians and spies, how important was it that Jake be likable or even relatable for the reader? Yeah, that's a very interesting question um, because, um, you know, Jake wants to be an honourable man. You know, he wants to mm -hmm. be a decent person and a decent Australian. Now, is that likeable? <laughs> is it relatable? Um, to some extent it is, but it can also not be. Um, you know, if someone is... Um, you know, naive, for example, or um, kind of delusional mm. um, or um, isn't fully in control, it, it can it can be less um, likable, maybe maybe relatable. Um, I think I think the it, out of control is much more relatable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's tremendous. Did you did you vacillate in your feelings for Jake as you wrote? Yeah, um, I, I do, um, and um, I think there's a kind of an ambivalence about him right right to the very end um, and about what he does and what happens um, that I, you know, that kind of, um, you know, gets me going as a, as a, as a writer. I'm, I'm really interested in that. Mm. There's a tremendous trick, I think, that books can play, particularly on us as we we travel alongside a point of view character and we come to, to feel a certain, uh, if not omnipotence, at least a, a certain, you know, large sense of agency that they have in their own world. And to find them subject, I'm getting, this is, I warned you about me getting a pay here, um, to, to find them, to find them subject to, or, or, or um, the, you know, the victim of things outside their own control can be a real, it can be a real challenge to, I guess, this journey that we're on. Yeah. And, um, well, that, I mean, in life, that can be a real challenge too. Mm. You know, when you feel you have agency and you're control of, in control of something and then you discover, well, actually, mm. maybe not. I mean, that that's a powerful thing. Um, but in this particular case with Jake, um, I mean, one of the words that um, is in the novel is the word unmoored. Mm. 
meaning a boat being unmoored. And Jake is someone who is very moored, like very, um, he's got his kind of moral bearings worked out at the beginning. But when that starts to um, sort of slip loose, um, it's it's threatening and difficult for him. But I think also for the reader, um, we have to think, well, who, you know, who is this guy and um, how how aware is he really of what what he's doing? Um, Nick, I'm going to warn you, I'm going off piste here, by which I mean this is not in my not in my script, not one of the questions. But as you were speaking there about Jake being unmoored, I was recalled to a scene in the latter part of the novel where Jake is standing with um, some of, some of his new team or his friends on a beach and he sees a historic wreck um, and reflects on it. And I couldn't help but hold those two ideas up in juxtaposition that this sense of, of being unmoored may feel, uh, I guess, unsettling. But also visually and, and iconically, you show us this sense of the ultimate mooring perhaps being a wreckage. Is Am I drawing too long a bow here with this? No, uh, well, that's, um, that's wonderful, <laughs> Andrew, and... Um, that that wreck, um, it exists on a beach on the, the south south of East Timor. It's the wreck of an Australian ship um, that was being used to actually rescue um, Australians who were in East Timor during the Second World War, and it got wrecked, and it's still there, um, rusting away. Um, but the thing about it for me is that you look from that southern beach out at the sea and Australia is so close, so close. I mean, the flight, for example, from Darwin to Dili is less than an hour, um, you know, on a Qantas Link plane. Mm. <laughs> like it, it's really close. Um, and yet, from our point of view, East Timor is miles away across the water, kind of sort of out of sight, out of mind. Um, and it's partly the scale, you know, like Australia is this huge landmass. Yeah. Uh, East Timor is half of a small island. Um, but it's also about perception that from an East Timorese point of view, Australia is just there. And Australians are there in their history. They're there as people doing all sorts of things, good and bad. Um, whereas for us, um, it's something we can easily just let go, like an unmoored sort of boat. It doesn't matter. Um, and we have similar kind of things with the islands or, oh, <laughs> the islands all around us. You know, we, we kind of um, worry about China mm. um, so far away, so much bigger, but we overlook things that are very close where we could mm. actually do something. Mm. I told you careful be what you wish for, uh, Nick. Dear listener, if you are a regular podcast listener, you will want to know that Winnie has just joined the conversation. Um, if Nick if Nick sounded like he had a smile in his voice, it's because one of my cats has just wandered across the screen. It's a warm chuckle and she's waving her tail at me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Thank goodness the camera angle didn't go. That was that was not her most flattering uh, fluttering side. <laughs> Thank you for your uh, your perseverance there, Nick. I we were talking about um, Jake's travels, and Jake, Jake has been sent to uh, to East Team. It was East Timor at the time, and he's travelling around effectively to take the temperature of the situation. And 
while he is there, he he comes to know people. It's impossible not to connect with people when you are moving. Well, I find it's impossible not to connect with people as you're moving around. Now, I wanted to, to take that as our, our background and maybe broadly leave the unfolding story of Jake's final months, um, tough as that may be because it does take up most of the book, but I wanted to touch on that clash of ideas or perhaps the clash of principles that emerges between what might be naively termed right and what the politicians in the book might deem expedient or that, uh, that overused term in the national interest. It's a problem that never goes away. We are having it right now. I wondered if you'd reflect on it in, in the context of the book and perhaps more contemporaneously if you were so inclined. <laughs> yeah, well, that phrase, um, the national interest, mm. um, you know, I always <laughs> um, kind of flinch mm. when I hear it because what does it mean? You know, what does it mean? Mm. Um, is it in the people's interest? Of Australia, is it in the interest of any particular group of people or any individual? Mm. Um, is it in the interest of our relations with our close neighbours? Um, what does it mean? And it can be wheeled out to justify, you know, almost anything. Um, so I'm wary of that phrase, um, but I do understand, you know, in political science, um, you know, there is a nation. The nation has an interest, um, and that may be amoral. It's not something that you subject to moral scrutiny. It's what will be, you know, make the nation survive and be powerful, something mm. like that. Um, but it's very easy to manipulate that and distort that and say that something is in the national interest. It's kind of, you can't argue with it easily. Um, when it actually may not be. Mm. It may be damaging other things um, longer term, for example. Um, in this particular case, um, the issue um, was whether Australia um, really wanted there to be an East Timor, an independent East Timor. Mm. I mean, that's the kind of key issue and the national interest quote unquote um earlier was that no we don't want a troublesome sort of basket case of a country right on our border much more sensible for it to be part of indonesia with whom we have our own other treaties and understandings and um you know joint um projects in resource um, extraction in particular, oil and gas from the from the uh, Timor Sea. Um, okay, that may be, that was a perception of the national interest at the time. But what do you do when, as it turned out, I think 80% or more of the population voted in that referendum and overwhelmingly for independence? What do you do when they want independence um, as a country that supposedly believes in self-determination? Um, you have to go with that. Um, so that involved um, a backflip, really, or in another phrase, you know, doing too little too late by Australia um, to to recognise what the people of East Timor actually wanted. Um, so that's a, 
yeah, I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but that's a kind of a, a context for this dilemma um, or this conflict that Jake in the novel sees very clearly because he's asked to take the temperature and the temperature in East Timor is very obvious to him mm. what it is because of the, the commitment and the, the sacrifices already made and the passion of the people he meets there. Um, but it's not what Canberra wants mm. to hear and, and Canberra is paying his, you know, is his paymaster. I mean, it, it was perhaps unfairly by me, it was a wicked question that, truly has no answer and right often depends on where you're sitting and the national interest very much as well also where you are sitting it strikes me that both of those terms are perhaps limited or expanded by how well we know the situation understand it what information we have available um and that there is i'm i'm going to i'm jumping ahead of myself here because i did have i did have a question that uh touches on social media and uh, we can throw a sort of counterfactual here because in in this in this age where social media can make the notion of idealism it feels distorted it has that kind of combative funhouse mirror effect on everything that it touches and the idealist exists in a time before social media it strikes me it might have been a very different situation if the timorese people had Twitter and TikTok and were able to actually be broadcasting some of the things that were going on on the ground, some of the things that you describe, Jake, as seeing. Um, but then I guess they had their own communication channels, as you you describe, and they can be manipulated as well. Was it so different back then, would you say? <laughs> yeah, I think um, even with all the possibilities of social media, um, it can still be controlled, you know, and people can be made frightened to use it. I mean, they can be threatened if they're um, saying the wrong things, and we we see that in we see that in Russia at the moment. We see that in China. Um, so, if there was a, a situation of such um, extremity um, today in East Timor. Um, I don't know whether social media would make a total difference, but I'm interested in what you said before about, you know, how much we know or understand about a situation um, and how much being on the ground can really change perception. Um, I think it probably can, um, you know, and that's why, you know, traditionally at least sort of diplomats have been sent out to be on the ground mm you know, in foreign countries and, you know, encouraged to walk outside the, you know, the gates of their compound and actually mm. sort of see what might be going on. Um, so I think um, there's probably no substitute for that sort of on-the-ground um, sort of information. Um, but also, this is, and this is going back to Jake's character now, some people are more open to what is in front of their eyes on the ground than others. Mm. You know, some people have a preconceived idea of how things are and they're going to stick to it no matter what. Other people are open to that, but that can be difficult. Um, so I don't know. Going to the present day, um, I agree with you that many of these issues are absolutely, um, you know, the same and relevant. 
in the present day, although, you know, the the positions that different players take, that, that can change. Um, so, I mean, at the moment in Australia, we, I don't know if you call it a debate about AUKUS, but there, mm. you know, there's this discussion about AUKUS, these nuclear submarines uh, that will um, make us, um, well, what, what's the word being used? Interchangeably part of the American alliance. Um, now, that's, you know, that's a concerning situation. But at the time um, of this referendum, independence referendum in East Timor in 1999, it was Australia that was trying to control the narrative mm. um, and actually stop the Americans, you know, getting the full picture from the people on the ground. Um, so it, there's a kind of reminder there that um, we can't... Um, you know, we sort of can't assume we're on the same page um, as others, even if we think we are, mm. and even if they want us to be, you know. It's interesting the point there that you make about um, our, our situation when we consider it in the short term versus taking the long view. And our conversation has very much, I think, floated around the specific, but also some of the much bigger ideas that you present, Nick. And I'm, I've got to admit, I was initially attracted to reading The Idealist less for its specific historical narrative and more for that discussion, that discussion around idealism, the ways that ideology shapes action. And I was really interested um, in Jake's initial trip to East Timor. It shows him a country of people who are strong in their identity. And through that, he comes to find it's a cause that he feels he can support but you also show us that already there are shades of something else, something more. And I wondered, I think as individuals, we'd all like to believe we're idealists. We'd all like to believe that we are holding on to something that we think is true and that our actions are right because of it. But did you want Jake's story to compliment, uh, sorry, complicate this idea of perhaps pure ideals or altruism? Yeah, well, I think it, it does complicate mm. it. Um, definitely in the novel, and where that comes from um, is mysterious. Mm. Um, whether um, it's, again, the personal entangling with the political um, or with the professional or whether there's some sort of change um, in Jake himself, some sort of opening or fracture even um, when he is on the ground through what he is perceiving, um, which is, after all, it's not just an everyday situation. It's like a, a really a, a sort of a, t a turning point um, for those people um, who are, um, you know, fighting for their country. Mm. And I don't know, it may be um, the, the figure the approximate figure for the number of people in East Timor who died in that conflict is 250,000, mm. you know, out of a very small country, a huge percentage. So, look, that's a mind-boggling figure when you think this was just happening mm. um, one hour's flight from Darwin. At the risk of flying too close to the sun here, Nick, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the idealist as a love story. P 
People who people people who have read the book will know why why we're flying close to the sun here. Um, but I was really curious. We've you've talked about the connection between the personal and the political. We have discussed very much the political, but it is of course the personal that resonates. It is the personal that will help you jump on Anne's cause at the beginning of the book and follow Jake as he travels. And in Anne, in David, in Jake, we see love. But if I can borrow from the title a little bit here, it is an idealizing love. Um, a love that may not be dealing with the reality of its situation. Is the idealist of the title a lover? <laughs> yeah, well, that's... Um, um, I like the way you put it, that all of these relationships involve love. Mm. But what kind of love is that? And if it's a, a complicated love, um, how do those different parts of it kind of affect each other. So we're talking about, you know, the love of an of a friend, you know, for an old friend, um, an old relationship maybe. We're talking about desire. Um, we're talking maybe about fantasy, infatuation, um, compulsion, all kinds of um, parts of love um, and we're also talking about um, a love for a cause um, or even a love for for virtue mm. you know for 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 goodness um, in humanity um, so that's a pretty that's a broad spectrum and um, I hope that the novel opens up some of that. Those, those possibilities without um, kind of um, simplifying it too much, I guess. I think actually you complicate it beautifully. And it's interesting as you were speaking there to reflect on the or some of the actions, I guess, that are taken in what are what is ostensibly the name of love. Um how love relates to Jake's whole journey, including um, including its conclusion. So, I think, I, I mean, I think that's that's probably the final question I have for you because I think it it complicates it casts uh, casts a reflection on the rest of the the discussion by bringing it back to this very idealized notion. Of, of love and how that has played out to create this this gripping narrative. Yeah, and how much someone's identity can be invested in that, mm. um, even if it's also um, like they're almost um, trapped within it. Mm. Absolutely. I am speaking with Nicholas Joes. We are discussing his new novel. It is called The Idealist. It is tremendous. I hope you've gotten a sense of the scope of its ideas, even if I have been slightly opaque with some of the action. I want you to discover it, dear listener. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Andrew. It's been very good to hear your, um, I, don't, I don't think opaque, but <laughs> I can fill in the colour. That is it for today's show. Thank you again to Nicholas Joes for bringing in his new book, The Idealist. Final draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. You can stay in touch, find Final Draft on the socials, or just head over to 2SCR.com, drop us a line, finaldraft at 2SCR.com, or subscribe in your podcast app. It means a new episode every week and a chance to, you know, 
say g'day. Drop us a review. My name is Andrew Popel. I am going to be back with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors here on Final Draft. And until then, happy reading. Bye for now.